What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 66, An Awkward Transition. In more ways than one, really. In this episode, we see the waning years of Hatshepsut, and that inevitable moment of passing. Finally, the sun rises with a new king on the throne of Egypt. Well, sort of. You get my point. Now then, on with the show. The year is now 1476 BCE, regnal year 19 of Thutmose III and his aunt, Queen King Hatshepsut. We are now into that last phase, the last five years of Hatshepsut's reign. Not that she knew that, of course. Who among us can know the moment of our passing? What Hatshepsut did know was that the great achievements of her reign were now either completed or nearing completion. After the Grand Jubilee of Year 16, she seems to have slowed down. Monuments were now being completed rather than commissioned. Campaigns, if there were any, were in the hands of young Tutmose III, now a grown man of 19 or 20 years old. The Queen King must have known that her days of total, sole rule were coming to an end. Whether by death or the ascent of her nephew, Hatshepsut would soon be eclipsed and her power would begin to diminish. The fact that her activities seem to have slowed down suggests, even if only tentatively, that Hatshepsut was prepared to accept this diminishing. Though she may not have liked it, perhaps she recognised the inevitable and chose not to fight it. One way or another, Tutmose III would soon be the brightest star in the political sky. And honestly, Hatshepsut seems like a shrewd enough woman that she would recognise that quite plainly. So, as the collective hangover from her jubilee festival waned, and her young nephew earned his stripes on small raiding campaigns, Hatshepsut must have sat back and wondered, what was it all about? What had she accomplished? What had she earned? And what, pray tell, would be her legacy to the world she had come to dominate? Well, she had accomplished a lot. She had earned even more. And her legacy was... mm, complicated. I'll spare you a full recap of what she had accomplished. If you want that, just go listen to the last five hours or so of the podcast. Five hours? Really? Wow, I must have been enjoying myself. That's a lot, even by the standards of this show. But hey, it's been worth it, because now I can sit here and say to you, Hatshepsut had achieved a great deal, more perhaps than any other woman in Egypt's long history before her. That had left a big legacy, which we'll be covering in bits and pieces over the coming episodes. But for now, here's a summary. Hatshepsut's legacy to the Egyptian people was miscellaneous. 
The most powerful aspect of it, the thing that she had the biggest impact on, was probably the political and religious landscape of the country. You see, Hatshepsut had taken power partly with the support of the priesthood, specifically the priesthood of Amun. She had appointed men loyal to her into key positions, and the temples to the gods were embellished heavily on her orders. The cult of Amun grew richer under her rule than at any other time, and Hatshepsut became, in her reign, the most devoted patron they had ever seen. All of this was good for them, of course, but it was going to have some negative consequences down the line. It would eventually lead to the priests influencing politics more and more, and that would build to the point that there was actual conflict between them and the royal household. I won't spoil the story, Suffice to say that Hatshepsut maybe started something that she didn't fully appreciate at the time. The temples of Amun were now big business, and they were going to play a big role in the years to come. The other major legacy of Hatshepsut was, of course, social. Before her, women of the court had been powerful, but after her, they would begin to take on a whole new status in the affairs of their husband. Now, there would never be another Hatshepsut. No woman would take power the way she had. But the royal women of Dynasty 18 would shape politics locally and internationally on a scale never seen before. There will be women in the stories to come whose influence we can scarcely understand today. Big names like Toya, T, Nefertiti are on the horizon, and they will culminate in the strange story of Ankhes and Amun, wife of Tutankhamun and lost queen of Egypt. Now, the stories of these women arguably begin with Queen Ahhotep, who led the 17th dynasty in the Theban revolt for many years. But without Hatshepsut, the feminine history of Dynasty 18 would be entirely different, scarcely recognisable. So, for that, Hatshepsut, we salute you. Regnal year 19, approximately 1476, dawned brightly, but Hatshepsut was contemplative. She had achieved much, and could be confident that she would be remembered for much more. Times had been good to her, and these were the days to enjoy them. But Hatshepsut hadn't done it all herself, of course. There had been help. And as she sat back, reflecting on her 19 years on the throne, the Queen had more than a few men to thank. Not in a patronising way, in an honest, loyal manner. There were men, and probably a few women, who had helped the Queen-King get to where she was today. It's about time we thanked a few of them. For one thing, a great many men and women whom she had known since childhood, people she had worked alongside during her regency, were dead. I want to take a moment to talk about some of the folks that Hatshepsut inherited. Because in our mad rush to cover all the big stuff of what Hatshepsut did, the things that made her, you know, Hatshepsut, I've had to skip a lot. But she didn't do it on her own. Every step of the way, people helped her. They made the little things possible so that the big things could come to pass. And we've missed a lot of them. They probably deserved better, for they stuck by Hatshepsut from the beginning. They did not come to power on her favour, but they stuck with her during her first ten years. They were loyal, and they deserve royal attention. So, let's whirlwind a few names. Hatshepsut would like to thank the following for making her regency possible. First of all, Hatshepsut thanks Armosa Pen Nechbet, or Armosa of El Kab. Armosa, you've been there since the beginning, and then some. 
You were a soldier in the time of Amunhotep I, of Tatmos I, and Tatmos II. You have served three kings and one queen regent, dying just before Hatshepsut became Ma'at Kare. Your service, Amosa, helped put her into power, and while you were amply rewarded in your lifetime, we do not want to forget you. Thank you, Amosa of Alkab. You served well. May your name live forever. To Ineni, mayor of Thebes and overseer of work at Karnak, you too have been amply rewarded for your service. You built the tomb of Tutmos I and managed affairs in the house of Amun for your queen. As a reward, you have gained the heights of wealth and status. Your name is connected with every major family of the day, one way or another. Your power is secure. A shame, then, that you left no children behind you to carry on your name. Your household will diminish after your death, and newcomers will take your place. For this, Ineni, we offer our sympathies. To Amoza Ahmetu, vizier, we could not have gained power without you. Your service under Tutmos I was merely the next step in a long dynasty of faithful officials. Your grandfather, Satait, served King Amoza I. Your uncle, Chulru, did the same. You married a relative of Ineni and fathered a son, Usar Amun, who would carry on your legacy. Usar Amun in turn became vizier under Hatshepsut, and the queen thanks you both for your loyal service. The title of vizier is among the highest in the land, second only to the king, and equal to the high priest of Amun. What you, Ahmetu, and your son, Usar Amun, do in the government make the splendor of Hatshepsut's monuments, her campaigns, her expeditions, and her festivals possible. Words cannot express our gratitude, but favors can. Enjoy your legacy as a father-son dynasty of viziers. You will leave a strong government, and all will remember. To Satep Ihu, husband, and Tanet Iunet, wife, we offer our gratitude. Satep Ihu, you served loyally as the mayor of Neken, a town even more ancient than Thebes, from the oldest days in Egypt's history. You led an expedition to quarry a new obelisk for Hatshepsut, and in gratitude, she has put your name and image on the obelisk itself. It stands in Karnak, a part of her legacy. Your name will live as long as the name of Hatshepsut lives. Thank you, Satep Ihu. To Tanet Iyunet, wife of Satep Ihu, your service as a royal wet nurse, perhaps to Tatmos II, or even Hatshepsut herself, is beyond gratitude. Although we know little about you outside of the accomplishments of your husband, you have helped give Hatshepsut the legacy of her power and splendor. The queen cannot thank you enough. These inherited officials took a real gamble when they sided with Hatshepsut and encouraged her hold on power. Although there was a precedent for a queen regent, those who stuck with her into her years as king were particularly ballsy, I think. Obviously, many of them profited quite nicely, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they really gambled there. Many of these officials were interconnected and interrelated. Wait, let me rephrase that. All of them were interconnected. Half of them are married to each other or have relatives married to one another. It's a tiny, tiny world, probably no bigger than the Hollywood elite. I don't mean the who's who of Hollywood, the flavors of the month like pop stars or the new in crowd. I'm talking the major power players, your Steven Spielbergs, your CEOs of Disney, your Kathleen Kennedys, who controls Lucasfilm, and all those kind of folks. 
CEOs and head honchos of some of the most profitable businesses in the world. That's the kind of tiny club we're talking about. The tiny club of Thebes had a complicated relationship. The high priest of Amun, Hapu Soneb, he was well connected. His daughter was married to a guy named Poi Imra, who was the deputy high priest of Amun. Which kind of begs the question, did Poi Imra become the deputy high priest because of his marriage, or did he get to marry Hapu Soneb's daughter because he was the deputy high priest? Either way, there's some serious nepotism going on. And this kind of stuff wasn't limited to the temples. The royal vizier, Ahmetu, was married to a relative of Ineni, the mayor of Thebes. This was probably more to Ineni's benefit than Ahmetu. He was in charge of the royal city, but having an in-law among the highest-ranking officials? That was helpful. So the community of the Theban powerful was deeply affected by the decisions of just a few small families. This basically goes for the whole extended apparatus of the Egyptian government under Hatshepsut and her predecessors. Imagine, if you will, a giant spider's web. Each decision tugs on a string, which tugs on two more strings, which tugs on two more strings, and so on. Basically, everyone in this tiny little community is connected, either by friendship, marriage, bloodlines, or a combination. Those who served Hatshepsut were a tight-knit group, and it's not hard to see why. As much as there was profit to be had by intermarrying, there was also safety. Supporting Hatshepsut, especially in the early days, was a risky decision. If the queen had failed to preserve stability, or someone had pushed her out of the way, many would have fallen alongside her. This can't have been an easy decision, certainly not a light one. I'm sure Ineni or Ahmetu, who were leftovers from the time of the I and II, spent more than one late night measuring and weighing their options thinking about what they might lose or gain if they went ahead with the Queen's plans. There must have been some anxious evenings back in those early days. But they made the right decision, as far as history is concerned. And I, for one, am grateful they did. Their stories may be fragmentary, but we acknowledge them as best as we can. Honestly, without these folks, it might not have been possible. These are just some of the men and women whom Hatshepsut inherited when she came to power. As for the others, well, most of them have disappeared into the woodwork. I've done what I can, but there are limits to what we can fit in here. To those we have passed over, please forgive us. Of course, Hatshepsut also appointed a great many officials in her time. She shuffled the cabinet around, appointed ministers, removed others, etc. How do they fit into all this? Well, those that lived long enough to see the end of Hatshepsut's reign we will cover in the context of the Third. It's more appropriate there. For those who did not outlive her, well, there's really only one person we have to talk about in that context, one whom Hatshepsut had appointed and who played a big role in her career. The question is, what on earth happened to Senenmut? Senenmut, our dear uncle, had come from nowhere and had been raised to the heights of power by Hatshepsut. He had been tutor to Neferura, the queen's daughter. He had been overseer of the estate of Amun, arguably one of the second or third most powerful positions in the country. And he had been a figure admired and respected by the queen herself. Senenmut had lived 16 or 17 years in glory under Hatshepsut. He had been the one to help place the crown upon her head during the Jubilee. That was the peak of his career. 
And then he just disappears. Seriously. Poof. He's gone. Where does Sen and Moot go? Well, we have no idea. And to this day, historians are still uncertain whether the most powerful official of Hatshepsut's reign died or somehow fell very quickly and very painfully out of her favour. I put my money on the idea that he simply died, but let's consider the second one just for a moment, for fun. Senenmut was never shy about promoting himself. Like any good Egyptian official, he commissioned statues and texts, talking big about what he had achieved, what he did for Egypt and for those around him. Good, honest civil service stuff. Loyalty to the king, generosity to those around, that kind of thing. But Senenmut was fairly restrained by the standards of most Egyptian officials. Or at least, he was more selective than them. By that I mean that Senenmut left behind more statues of himself than any other official before him. But it's the kind of statues he left that hint at his personality. He left a lot of images of himself in devotional poses, poses of worship, or making offerings. And he left many images of himself protecting or nursing the young princess Neferura. But he didn't tend to leave ordinary statues of himself, ones that were purely there to commemorate his image or promote his memory. Senenmut was smarter than that, I think. He seems to have recognised the prevailing winds of the time, and made sure that his image and memory were as much as possible bound to the idea of service. Service to Hatshepsut, service to her family, and service to the gods. Sensible stuff, right? Well, maybe, just maybe, he slipped up. And maybe he slipped up big. And maybe this cost him his job. You see, Senenmut appears in one place where he wouldn't logically be expected. Not the sexy graffito from the West Bank of Thebes. Good guess, though. No, the place where he probably shouldn't be, but does appear, is the temple of Jesser Jesseru. Yeah, Hatshepsut's mortuary temple. That Jesser Jesseru. Senenmut shows up in several scenes on the walls of Hatshepsut's mortuary temple. But he's sort of been inserted into the proceedings, like a later addition, something that wasn't originally planned. Essentially, you're looking at a conventional scene, and then suddenly, hey, it's Senenmut. If you've been paying attention, alarm bells might be ringing about now. How is this official, just one among many, allowed into the decoration of the most sacred temple in Hatshepsut's whole building program? Put it simply, maybe he wasn't. Of the two big candidates for why Senenmut disappeared, my favourite is the idea that he put himself into the decoration of Jesser Jesseru without Hatshepsut's permission. This would just be too good. Imagine going so many years, doing everything right, and then just one day you make the wrong move. The wrong switch turns on in your brain and you think, yeah, this is totally a good idea. I sincerely hope for Senenmut's sake that this is all a big misunderstanding, because if not, Hatshepsut must have been livid. It's one thing to make a statue of yourself without anyone's permission, that's just a slap on the wrist. But to add yourself to the Queen's Temple? Oh boy, there is no emoticon for how that would feel. But, hypotheticals aside, there actually is a perfectly reasonable explanation for all of this. Although the story of Senenmut supposedly falling out with Hatshepsut is a popular one, it actually has very little to back it up. In fact, 
Senenmut has an alibi here, an inscription in a shrine at Deir al-Bahari that offers us an explanation. Quote, Senenmut received royal bounties or favours, in the form of letting his name endure, upon all the walls, in Jesser-Jesseru, as well as in all the sanctuaries of the southern and northern gods. End quote. So, there you have it. Myth debunked. Senenmut had permission to put himself on the walls of Jesser-Jesseru. At least, that's what modern Egyptologists propose. As always, the truth has gone AWOL somewhere, and we're still searching for it. What is clear is that whether Senenmut died or was disgraced, he didn't enjoy a particularly robust legacy. Not long after his burial, maybe within a decade or two, his tomb was ransacked, his sarcophagus was smashed, and many of the images on the walls of his tombs were erased. Basically, someone with an axe to grind took their revenge on the courtier. Who did this? We don't know. Why did they do it? We don't know that either. What we do know is that Senenmut, who had been utterly supreme during his life, basically had a very ignominious legacy and end. Kind of a sad note, really. Still, it's the note that history gives us. So, sorry, Senenmut, we've enjoyed having you with us, but now it's time to go. In the words of the great musical, So long, farewell, our Wiedersehen, goodbye. With the death and disappearance of Senenmut, we reach the final phase of Hatshepsut's career. The last five years were probably marked a lot by death. Most of the officials whom Hatshepsut inherited passed away long before she did. Senenmut, likewise, probably died somewhere around regnal year 19, 1476 BCE or so. That's a lot of death going around. At some point, Hatshepsut must have wondered, what would she do to prepare for the big day? You would expect Hatshepsut to have a pretty lavish tomb, right? She was an incredibly successful and wealthy ruler. Wouldn't she logically put a lot of effort into creating the grandest tomb imaginable? Short answer, no. Hatshepsut's tomb is almost comical for how unremarkable it is. Why? Well, it has to do with how she set it all up. Hatshepsut was a fresh thinker in many ways. She innovated in government and religious practice, and she helped reshape the Egyptian kingship on some really fundamental levels. But even she had her limits. And surprisingly, these limits show up in the one place you'd expect her to be totally fixated on her own needs. You see, when it came to her tomb, Hatshepsut basically stopped asserting her own individuality and status, and instead she took a colossal step backwards into the embrace of her father, Thutmose I. Thutmose I had gone to rest in one of the earliest tombs, if not the earliest, in the Valley of the Kings. His burial was simple compared to what you might normally imagine in the valley. There were no elaborate catacombs or passageways, just one long corridor running deep into the bedrock and ending in a few small chambers. In many ways, it kind of resembles an old pyramid tomb, except, you know, without the pyramid. Now this was satisfactory for Tutmose's needs, apparently, but surely Hatshepsut, who had led the empire to new heights of wealth, 
and whose mortuary temple, out in Deir al-Bahari, was one of the most fabulous monuments of the age. Surely she would require a splendid tomb of her own. Nope. Hatshepsut did not commission a tomb for herself. Instead, she decided that the tomb of Tutmos would be reworked into a double tomb. Royal craftsmen would reopen the great king's tomb. They would place a new sarcophagus in it for his daughter. And they would basically just make a few small extensions in order to accommodate extra funerary items. Essentially, the queen would be buried alongside her father. But why, though? Hatshepsut had ruled long enough that if she wanted a tomb, she could have set one up. She was certainly wealthy enough to afford it, and there was really no reason why she shouldn't do it. Why have a sarcophagus in the tomb of her father, and not one in her own lavish monument? Why skip on one of the most important projects a king could undertake? Why indeed? There is no 100% clear reason why Hatshepsut chose to do this, but it probably has something to do with Thutmose I personally. Hatshepsut had always made a big deal of her relationship to Thutmose I, how he had supposedly promoted her as his heir, and appointed her to high office before he died. So the Queen King had strong ties to her father, at least in propaganda. It was all fiction, of course, or at the very least, a real stretch of the truth. But this is the ancient world, not the Chicago Tribune. Truth is what the king makes of it. When it came to preparing her eternal resting place, perhaps Hatshepsut was faced with a dilemma. The world around her had accepted her regal authority, they had accepted the necessity of her rule, since her nephew was too young. But would the gods accept her? Would she be judged appropriately before Osiris and the Great Ones? Now there was the question. What kind of legitimacy did Hatshepsut have in the underworld? Could she be guaranteed a place? Putting her sarcophagus in the tomb of Thutmose I may partly have been an insurance policy. By doing this, the queen could ensure that her name was associated with his, her deeds with his, and her legitimacy with that of his rule. In other words, burying herself alongside her father might have been Hatshepsut's final act of protecting herself against any challenge. Whether it was men and women in the mundane world, or gods in the eternal, Hatshepsut wanted security and safety. If that meant bunking up with her father's sarcophagus, so be it. Of course, the answer might be more simple. Maybe she genuinely loved her father, and wanted to be close to him. Anything is possible, right? Even in the highly formal and stratified world of the Egyptian court, there must have been plenty of space for genuine family connections. It's not impossible that Thutmose I really had nurtured his young daughter, and perhaps she had developed an affection for him. Maybe, at the end of the day, Hatshepsut simply wanted to be near her daddy. But there are other potential reasons too. Work was still underway at Jesser Jesseru for one thing. Maybe Hatshepsut prioritised the mortuary temple, and was satisfied with more modest arrangements for her actual tomb. Maybe the queen wanted to preempt any backlash by securing herself alongside her father. In theory, people would be loath to enter the tomb once it was sealed. Maybe going to rest alongside Tutmos was more secure in the long run. Or maybe her reasoning was something else entirely. We will probably never know. What we do know is that as of regnal year 20, Hatshepsut had made very elaborate plans for her mortuary cult, but only the most modest arrangements for her actual burial. All in all, it's a very strange situation, 
and one that does not happen very often. Regnal years 19, 20, 21 and 22 passed relatively quietly. We don't hear much about them. There were some building projects underway, of course. Hatshepsut had commissioned a lot of shrines and temples over the years. The work progressed, day after day, year after year, with no end in sight. In Thebes, of course, the court was ever busy. Officials and overseers were tireless, working to manage the thousand and one tasks of a country-wide administration. They took reports and received petitions. They heard complaints and disputes from their various jurisdictions. They came and went in the palace, and they always took note of the political winds. They listened to what Hatshepsut was planning, and they listened even more to what the up-and-coming Tutmos III had to say. And they waited, perhaps anxiously, for that inevitable day. The day arrived sometime in 1473 BCE, regnal year 22. A cry went up in the royal apartments, and messengers began to hurry from the court to the temples, the government offices, the barracks, and the estates of the nobility. Hatshepsut, Ma'at Kare, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, was dead. Usaret Kao Wajrenput, Netjeret Kao, Maat Kare Hatshepsut, son of Re, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, had transcended the mortal realm and travelled into the West. She was approximately 45 years old, and she had led the Egyptian people for 22 years. In her time, the kingdom of Egypt had been stable and prosperous. Wars and trade expeditions had brought back wealth for the elite. Stability at home and good harvests had kept the people in their accustomed rhythm of life. Overall, the land was at peace. Normally, the death of a king would be a moment of great apprehension. In the hours between the king's death and the next dawn, the land would be temporarily vulnerable, with no king upon the throne. Chaos would beckon, demons would be more powerful, and the people would wait with bated breath as the night closed in on the land. A standard royal death marked a clear-cut break between one reign and the next. When the sun rose on the following morning, the successor would take their place on the throne, and stability would resume. But in those hours of the night, anything could happen. The death of Hatshepsut, though, was a bit more awkward. She was dead, certainly, and people would mourn. But Egypt was not vulnerable like it normally was, for the throne was still occupied. In fact, it was more securely occupied than it had been since Hatshepsut decided to share the seat officially. In other words, the death of Hatshepsut was not really a moment of peril, it was actually a moment of security. Now that the Queen King had died, the throne was once again occupied by just one individual. The crown sat upon one head, the scepters were in one pair of hands. Decisions came from one mind, and the gods now looked to just one soul. Basically, a period of awkward double rule had passed. Things were back to normal. Tutmos III was now single, so to speak. He sat on the throne of his sole possession. The land waited on his word alone. He was finally, totally free. But first things first, 
there were some arrangements to take care of. The queen was dead, and she needed to be buried. Tutmose III saw that it was done. The funeral of Hatshepsut was probably a slightly awkward affair. Not in terms of the rituals. The priests and Tutmose III went through all the same motions you would go through for any king. They purified the body, opened the mouth, made offerings to the Ka, and sealed her into her sarcophagus, just like countless generations had done before. But there were questions hovering over the whole affair. Were they burying a legitimate king, or were they burying a queen? Or even worse, were they burying a usurper? This was a question that only Tutmose III could answer. And you might expect him to have demeaned his aunt in some way. After all, she had sidelined him for years, pushing him out of his rightful place. Surely he would see her as a usurper, or at the very least as an illegitimate ruler. Well, you'd be wrong, and Tutmose might be offended at your lack of trust. Tutmose, now sole king, treated his aunt-slash-stepmother with the full respect and honours due to a king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Whatever he thought of the political reality, he gave her a proper funeral and buried her with appropriate ceremonies. He did not shirk any obligations to his predecessor, for a predecessor she was. For better or worse, her influence had shaped the childhood of the new king, and for all he knew, she may very well have ensured that he survived long enough to take his rightful place. Tutmose III laid his aunt to rest in her tomb. But what was she like? I mean, physically. Do we have her mummy? Can we tell anything about her? We might have Hatshepsut's mummy. It's uncertain. There is a mummy in the Cairo Museum, which is purported to be the mummy of Hatshepsut. But no one has done any DNA testing on this mummy to prove that connection. In other words, we're not entirely sure if that is Hatshepsut, or just a woman of a comparable age, found in a nearby tomb. The tomb of Tutmose I was ransacked in antiquity, and his body was later removed for reburial in the great royal cache. But Hatshepsut's mummy was never found. It wasn't in the cache, and it wasn't in the original tomb. So where was it? Well, we simply don't know. It's entirely possible, based on the historical circumstances, which I'll get to in an episode or two, that her body was later destroyed. Or it's possible that it was lost and dismembered by robbers. Finally, it might be that she did actually survive, and she's waiting to be discovered. The mummy that's in the Cairo Museum is an interesting specimen. If we assume just for the moment that it is Hatshepsut, then we get a very different image of her from her body than we do from her statues. Obviously, the statues are idealised, but the body is something else entirely. First of all, the positives. Hatshepsut went to her grave wearing red and black nail polish, an interesting affectation which I think is rather cool. Physically, though, things were a bit unfortunate. Hatshepsut, or the woman we claim to be Hatshepsut, suffered from diabetes late in life. This happened because she happened to be clinically obese. The woman that we now recognise as the possible queen was a very large woman. She was also, unfortunately, very ill. On one hand, she was starting to go bald, and seems to have worn a mullet, long hair at the back, and nothing in the front. This is a rather interesting hairstyle, and I almost wonder whether she was trying to mimic a royal headdress in some fashion. Wrapping this all up in one package, it would seem that Hatshepsut, or the woman who we now think is Hatshepsut, was not a very healthy person later in her life, 
it seems that Hatshepsut's last days probably were somewhat painful and unpleasant. She could look back, of course, on decades of successful rule and great accomplishments, but that didn't change the fact that she was physically tired and weak and getting sicker every day. Her blood sugar levels were possibly out of control, and she was probably in a lot of pain. So this may have been the state of Hatshepsut's body when she was laid to rest in that tomb alongside her father. Regardless of the size and state of her mummy, the funeral was traditional. Her body, mummified, was placed into its coffin, dragged down the corridor into the tomb of Tutmose I, and laid into its sarcophagus. Overseeing all this was the young king, Tutmose III. Whatever went through his head in these strange moments, in this claustrophobic tomb filled with incense, with chanting and prayer, Tutmose III had come to honour Hatshepsut and to bury her. As the priests and musicians filed out, up the corridor, did Tutmose look back on the sarcophagus, on the woman who had dominated his political life for 22 years? Maybe. I would have. The tomb was sealed, the entrance guarded, and Hatshepsut, daughter of kings, leader of Egypt, ruler of the known world, was gone. What now? Now, it began all over again. Tutmose III was king. He was 23 to 24 years old, and he was ready for some authority. As the sun rose over his kingdom the morning after the funeral, he was finally, completely, and entirely king. In the first few days, weeks, and months, the king surveyed his dominion. From Nubia in the south to Syria in the north, subjugated peoples acknowledged him as their overlord. His people travelled extensively throughout Egypt, the Near East, and the Eastern Mediterranean. Trade brought him exotic goods, and diplomats came from every corner of the world to offer their goodwill, their friendship, to the newly single King of Upper and Lower Egypt. But then, one day, a messenger came hurrying into the palace. He was the last in a line of couriers that had travelled as quickly as they could across Sinai, into the delta, and down to Thebes. They carried news that only the king could address, dire news, news of grave import. The messenger came to Tutmose III with word. Hatshepsut's death had encouraged sedition. Locals in Syria and Canaan were restless. As a result, several leaders and cities in the region had risen up in arms and were now demanding their freedom. In other words, the lands of the Near East were in revolt. Tutmose's authority was threatened and the empire was in danger of collapse. The king received this news and acted immediately. The word went out across Egypt. The soldiers were to assemble. The king was on his way with his noble charioteers and the professional corps of the Egyptian armed forces. They would gather on the edge of Sinai, at the edge of the delta, to train and arm themselves. And then they would march out into the desert to attack the rebels head on. What would follow would be one of the first recorded battles in history. A violent clash between the past and the future. Canaan, come hell or high water, would never be the same again, and Tutmose would face the full force of rebellion, alone. There was no Hatshepsut to help him now. It was all on him. Let the dice fly. <laughs> 